1: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously interesting books. And this week, the curiosity is focused on books themselves, indeed on a book entitled The Book by Amaranth Borsuk, which appears in the MIT Essential Knowledge series. Amaranth is a scholar, poet and book artist who works at the intersection of print and digital media. She's also assistant professor in the School of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences, the University of Washington Bothell. Her book in the MIT Press series examines, as the lapidary copy on the back puts it, the book as object, as content, as idea, as interface. Its focus is wide, not just recent developments in digital books, but also artist books that challenge the notion of what a book is and does, or the books of Renaissance scholars where erudite debate would be pursued in marginal annotations. All the way back, in fact, to the earliest clay tablets, which the Sumerians used over 5,000 years ago to record important information. Amaranth writes in her preface, I have long been fascinated by the book as a malleable medium for artistic inquiry and by writing technologies as a spur to authorship. My goal in this short work is to bring together several perspectives on the book, that illuminate its long history of transformation. I'd say that's an ambition in which she succeeds resoundingly. When I spoke to Amaranth recently, I began by suggesting that she could have confined herself to recent developments in books in the digital age, but chose not to.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I didn't want to either confine myself to the current moment or to use the current moment as the kind of comparative for... The history of the book, sort of making it so that everything leads up to right now, which is the apotheosis of everything the book can be and do. I didn't want to set us up to think of of the present as the perfection of books in the digital moment. And I, I think that for anyone who wants to have a grasp of what it means to know what a book is, it's essential to understand how books have evolved over time. And I think because the word book for so many people refers to this very specific artifact, that a stack of pages bound on one side and and then closed in covers, what we're seeing is a very specific material interface. So in order to get okay with the idea that the interface can change, we have to see how it's already historically been mutating and changing and look, you know, as deep into the past of portable information devices as we can. And I didn't want to lose that history by focusing so much on the present.
1: So again you could have started in Gutenberg and just quickly covered the things that that came before but that would have been that would have been too much of a sort of a to b wouldn't it we you know we had the codex we had the printed book that seemed stable for centuries obviously it wasn't but then we had the the digital book but you go much much further back to things which i guess we wouldn't normally apply the term book to but nonetheless have have some part to play in this in this lineage this story that you tell.
0: Yeah. I think it's important that we also not take a a very explicitly western perspective on what a book can be. The goal of my book is to reach readers who love books and who are passionate about reading. And I I think we have a lot to learn from a deeper history that reaches out to other cultures and other modes of transmitting information. By considering things um, like a clay tablet or a bamboo scroll or a kipu, considering all of those things books allows us to learn from those methods and see how books can be so much more than the codex.
1: A book might be best understood as a material support for inscribed language a category that includes rolls and codices and even monumental inscription, both written by hand and printed by many different mechanisms, and also a wide variety of digital media. Jessica Brantley, the prehistory of the book. What is really interesting is the way in which you show things which have changed and which have evolved, but also things which suggest a continuity. I'm thinking about things as simple as an object which we hold in our hands, an object which tends to be rectangular or square, something that we have a sort of tactile relationship with. Mm. That, that goes all the way back to those clay tablets that you, that you mentioned.
0: Absolutely. That's so true. Um, there's a pull quote in a book from Jan Schischold where he says that a book is sized to the average hands of an adult. Shishold uh, was a, a graphic designer who famously updated Penguin's aesthetic and kind of regularized what they were doing, creating a kind of house style guide. I like that idea of a book being something that's sized to the average person's hands in that what it reminds us of is that books evolve from people using whatever they can get their hands on and what is most commonly used within the culture in which that portable Um, information storage device arises, is often some some sort of material that has been perfected for other uses. So clay tablets, you know, clay in Mesopotamia was being used to build houses and earthenware. And it was something that the Mesopotamians really had perfected. So it would make sense that they would, you know, grab the stuff that the Tigris and Euphrates were providing in abundance just put it in the palm of their hand and, and begin using that small hand-sized device to record information. Um, likewise, in China, where bamboo was being used so extensively in 1600 BCE, it would make sense to to find a way to use that to distribute information. And I, I like that the hand becomes so central to the way that you're talking about the book and the way that I'm Uh, this sort of continuity that you're noticing across all of these different kinds of books. Because fundamentally, a book is about a reader. That's something that many readers don't think about when they're in the process of holding the material object of a book. It's been so commercialized that it seems just totally natural that books come in these very standard sizes that can be shelved in a particular way, that have a barcode on the back and, and a title on the spine. All of these apparatuses that tell us what the Codex book is, are things that evolved. And they evolved because of the needs of readers and writers and booksellers. And fundamentally, they're in order to get a reader to pick that book up. They're there to help the reader consult that book, to draw the reader into that book. And we tend to think of ourselves as disembodied readers, or at least this is my perception, is that most readers see a book as an intellectual construct that an author creates and delivers to us. We're not even necessarily thinking about the physical form, particularly now when you can get the same book, you know, I'm I like big air quotes around same book yes, on a yes. Kindle, on your <laughs> iPhone, in a PDF, in a paperback, and in a hardbound covers. Is it really the same book? I don't think it's the same book because I think the physical experience of reading it changes so dramatically in each of those situations and they change because of the reader's body and how the reader is encountering that book. So materiality is one of the the key things that I am thinking about in the book is the material structure in which the book is presented and the material experience of accessing it. The book really It's a performance, and it happens only when the reader comes to the book and opens it with their hands.
1: If the book's handiness has been fundamental to the way we have taken stock of the world, its ability to serve as a container has been another way through which we have found order in our lives. Books are things that hold things. Andrew Piper, book was there, reading in electronic times. I mean, we use the phrase, the act of reading. And I guess before reading your book, i had mainly thought about that as an intellectual act. But the more I read in your book, the more I thought about how we are really, we are navigating with a, a physical object, even if it's, a, if it's a screen or if it's a, if it's a printed book, we are interacting with that physically. And the physicality of the book is reflected, as you point out, in the, the words that we often use for the parts of the book, isn't it?
0: Right, that's so true. The way that we give the parts of the book these very embodied names, like the, the head of the book, which is the top of the book that you might you know grab with your finger to pull it off the shelf, or the tail, which is what it sits on. It even has a joint where the cover meets the first page of the book, and it has a spine, right? Um, yeah, all of the language around the book sort of um, gives it a body. And if you think about the book uh, originating, you know, maybe uh, 100 CE at a time when it was being made out of vellum, so animal skin inside, and being bound probably also in leather, it had a lot of connection to the physical body, to, you know, a warm living creature mm. that it doesn't necessarily now.
1: Yeah, it was it was literally skin. It was being pr- printed on skin.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, I like that you used the word navigating for books. Mm. And it's one of the reasons that there's um, an example of an artist book that I talk about uh, in the book that's called uh, The Big Book. It's by Alison Knowles. And basically, it's an eight-foot-tall book that she created in the 1960s on the first floor of her Chelsea Brownstone. She you know, was a, a book artist and part of this group called Fluxus that was interested in happenings and, and creating art that is ephemeral and of the moment and interactive. And so she creates this eight foot tall book that in order to read it, you basically have to move through it. You have to navigate it. You have to climb through a window and go up a ladder. And there's one one set of pages to get from one page to the next, you have to crawl through a tunnel that's lined with AstroTurf. And I think that when you blow up the book to that scale, it really, it makes you think about the fact that we navigate books with our bodies and that reading a book is about traversing space. It's traversing a series of spaces. And we lose the connection to that when we see it on such a small scale and it's so normalized that our eye is scanning back and forth and back and forth along a series of lines, and then we turn a page. But if you actually have to walk through it, you suddenly realise the book is going to be different for every person who navigates it because each person is going to navigate it differently and bring with them a different set of life experiences.
1: Well, you've you've raised the um, question of artists' books, and it seemed to me that artists' books, in a, in a way, are at the centre of, of your book, sort of both physically and um, in terms of its, its argument and the, the way it's, it's exploring the terrain, for someone who perhaps you know perhaps has seen pictures of artist books by Picasso or Chagall or Matisse or something, it's clear that the, the genre of artist books is much much wider than that. Mm. Now, what would you say to someone who might who might sort of have the the, the preconception that artist books are really just a sideshow? They're, they're sort of they're part of the product of the art world, but really, when we're talking about the book and its place in culture, they are they're not they're not central to thinking about these issues?
0: Ah, well, I would say you're absolutely right that they're not central. They are purposefully on the sidelines and in an extreme form. The, the they're are...
1: eccentric. They're literally eccentric, deliberately.
0: Yes, exactly. That's right. They're literally eccentric. They They want to be on the fringes and doing kind of extremes in order to get us to question what a book is, can be, can do. So... I think that makes them a very useful case study because by taking the book to its natural limits, they force us to reckon with the physical object of the book. And they make us see the book as an object again by defamiliarizing it.
1: Clearly, the the artists are responding to lots of different stimuli, but it's one of the things they're responding to and reacting against the commercialism of publishing because the artist book really begins to take off Pretty much around the same time as book publishing becomes a, a mass production industry.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. That's both the timing; it's not a coincidence. It, it has a lot to do with a desire to create things. So, it, there. I should step back and say there are several different threads within artist books and. But I do think that a large impulse, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century, has to do with taking the means of production into your own hands. And you know, we see that in like the, the earliest artist books made by the Russian futurists, where they are essentially collaborating on books of poetry and art that are meant to be easy, cheap. They're made on things like wallpaper as inexpensively as possible in order to distribute their own work. And as kind of a community building exercise too, since it's all about collaboration. And that extends into the 20th century with someone like Ed Roche making his own artist books in the 1960s and onward uh, as a way of circumventing the gallery star system and basically creating a work of art in book form that can be easily distributed inexpensively and get his name out there. And that's actually the, the impulse to, to do it yourself. It is both about controlling the means of production and circumventing traditional publishing routes, but it's also about aesthetic control in some cases. And that's one of the reasons that we often think of William Blake as a progenitor of the artist book, because for him, the craft of making a book, the visual art and the text in it, they were inseparable and he wouldn't want to say, you know, publish a, a book of poems um, and then have it turned over to an illustrator to create beautiful visuals to go along with it. He certainly also wouldn't want to make his own lithographic prints or he, he wouldn't want to, to do his own intaglio processes at home and then send the artwork and the text to a printer to, to, you know, print up the poems and insert them. He really had to have everything unified. So he created his own printing method in order to incorporate both image and text simultaneously. And I guess those are the kind of the two key things that artists working in book form uh, over the course of the 20th century are struggling for is control of the means of production and controls of the aesthetic of the work, while also, you know, pushing the boundaries of what books even are.
1: A book is a knot. Dieter wrote 246 little clouds. Well, yes, I mean, let's let's come on to that, because as well as challenging the gallery system and the, the publisher's control, sometimes they're challenging notions like, like permanence and, and fixity and the, the nature of how a book operates, I guess, challenging that sometimes in a playful way.
0: Yes, that's so true. There is uh, a book that I talk about in the book that uh, is one of my sort of touchstones in that vein of of thinking about the book's Potential for ephemerality. So it's a book by Dieter Roth. He did a series of artist books called Literaturburst, where he would take tabloid newspapers or books of German literature that he was not fond of and pulp them. <laughs> Essentially, you know, grind them to a pulp, cook mm. them with fat and spices, and put them in skin casings and make sausages out of them. Mm. And I think that's a very cheeky way of getting us to think about what it means to preserve literature. He's making sausage, which is generally a way of preserving meat so that you can save it, say, for a long voyage. Um, And in this case, what it does to these books is it renders them completely illegible. And he's encasing them in sausage casings. So they're in skin, much like a book being bound between covers, but they're locked away where no one can actually access them. And for the institutions that have collected his work it's actually really hard to keep it stable because a, a shelf life of a sausage might be 6 months or something you know and now they're they're in danger of falling apart you know 40 50 years later conservators are having to keep them in vaults that are climate controlled and basically document the process of their decay.
1: Well, a rather more banal example from my own experience is that um, when I worked at Oxford University Press, I remember visiting the warehouse and being told by someone who worked there that when one of the world's classics was sent back by a bookseller because publishing operates on a sale or return model, it was too expensive to get the robots to put the books back on the shelf. And (laughs) so they were sold off to be shredded for pet bedding and I remember thinking wow you know these pillars of world literature when they when they enter this commercial space it's no longer cost effective to re you know to send them back out into the world and so they go to be they go to be shredded and they end up you know underneath hamsters and guinea pigs (laughs) and that that has always stuck with me um you know as a sort of corrective to the notion that the book is you know and and, and classics are always treated with reverence
0: that's so great that's a wonderful anecdote and it really does show how ephemeral the book really is particularly when it's turned into a commodity that work of of you know classic literature um still exists it doesn't destroy the content of the work but the physical form which is the way that that it gets distributed is seen as sort of secondary and it's not it's not at all eternal
1: well again another another thing which i learned quite early on in my publishing career was that printers, this was from visiting a printer this time, they said they guaranteed the glue in the binding of a paperback book for eight years. And I was shocked, you know, in in my early 20s. I thought only eight years? That's that's nothing. I expect to keep these books for a lifetime but really they were being pragmatic I suppose and thinking well most of these are either read for pleasure but not held on to for life because they're inexpensive paperbacks or they're read by students and they get rid of them and they, so pragmatically as a manufacturer, you know, seeing the book as a manufactured object they saw no need to try to work on a glue that gave a longer lifespan than eight years. Mm -hmm. If they could guarantee it for eight years without drying or cracking and the pages coming out, they felt they had done their bit. And that that has also stuck with me under the sort of rubric of the ephemerality of books.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess we maybe think of books, we think of them as having this aura about them, that they're, you know, special artifacts, they're expensive to produce, and they're special because we hold on to them and they have a kind of story for us. Many of us who are book lovers can remember the first time we read a particular book our copies of books might even have our own handwritten notes in the margins, all things that sort of remind us of where we were and who we were when we, when we read those books. But that's not necessarily what their intended use was. That's one reason that the design of books also changes how we interact with them. If we were reading a, a book designed with, you know, glorious large margins around the edges that left lots of space for dialogue, like some you know, Renaissance books, mm. um, we would have the impulse to really fill it with our doodles and commentary and our talking back maybe to the author. Whereas the books that we have now tend to be much more economical in the way that they're designed and don't necessarily invite as much writing in them. I can't tell you how many of my students are appalled when I tell them they should be writing in their books and, and making notes in their books. Both because they think of it as a kind of sacred space that's created yeah. by the publisher, and then also because they intend to sell them back to the bookstore at the end of the academic border, <laughs> yes, and they want course. to get their money back.
1: I mean, it's interesting what you've just said about the, the Renaissance scholar with the wide margins, um, entertaining or entering into some sort of um, silent dialogue with the author, because that that nature of the relationship between the reader and the book has been one that's that's been changing and you know now we've come to the stage where if you want you can see what parts of an ebook someone else has annotated you know what what the sort of collective cultural dialogue with a with an ebook is so it's no, it's no longer confined to you and the, the silent
0: text right uh, well i like that example of the the ebook where you can see what other people have been highlighting and what other people think is worth saving in a way it does take us to a different place, but it's also a familiar place to anyone who's sort of read ancient biblical commentaries uh, where a a text from the Old Testament would be, and this was in, in the manuscript tradition, reproduced with commentary all around its borders from rabbinical scholars who had different glosses and interpretations of the text. And in a way you're seeing what, you know, five different rabbis thought was the most important thing to think about or understand in a text. This is obviously on a much smaller scale and it doesn't necessarily have that talking back quality, but it's kind of a, a connection to that deeper history of wanting to know what do other people think is valuable or valid or, or interesting in this particular text. It's, it's not necessarily an intuitive feature that ebook manufacturers would have put in. I think the, the choice to allow people to see other people's interests, to me anyway, doesn't seem like an intuitive choice because of our historic relationship with the contemporary book as a private artifact, one in which, I mean, for many people, you don't necessarily want other people to know what it is that you are looking at in a, in a book, what you think might be, if you're a scholar, the the exciting thing to write an essay about, or if you're a Lay reader just enjoying a book, you know, the thing that's your special private moment in the book doesn't necessarily need to be made public.
1: One of one of the um, the antecedents to our contemporary networked landscape of texts, which I really loved, was the um, the book wheel from 1580s Italy, which I think I think you say was never actually made, but it's a kind of prototype of. I guess, yeah, having access to multiple texts at one time. Can you can you say something about that and how you think that sort of plays into the bigger, the bigger history of what we're talking about?
0: Yeah, I love that book wheel too, and it has been more recently, um, you know, uh, assembled by scholars who want to wanted to sort of test out whether whether it would actually work as designed. But essentially, it was designed by. A stage designer who made all kinds of cool apparatuses, you know, interactive mechanical apparatuses, and this book wheel was designed so that a scholar could have multiple volumes open simultaneously and never have to lose their place in the book. And if they were arranged on this wheel, it would take up a lot less space than, say, on a, on a table in your study to have, you know, 20 or 30 books strewn about and have to go back and forth consulting between them. So if you could arrange them on this uh, water wheel, essentially, and turn this water wheel, you would be able to consult multiple books at the same time in a way that is somewhat hypertextual. Essentially, the reader becomes the hypertextual connection from one book to the next, because the reader can more easily relocate the information that they were looking for within multiple books at the same time. And it feels like a sort of Corollary to the digital moment where you can have multiple books simultaneously up on say your desktop Um, If you're using um, You know PDF software to consult multiple books at the same time or if you're carrying around a Kindle that has It can have many 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 you know hundreds of volumes on it that you can consult simultaneously But I think there's something different fundamentally different in the tactility of that book wheel because you can you can see all those books, they don't disappear in the same way that they disappear when you're using a digital reading device. You're only really seeing one book at a time on the Kindle. You're not able to you're not able to sort of array them out in front of you in the same way that the book wheel allows you to do.
1: And I guess the the, the book wheel would have been a form of exercise too <laughs> if, it, if it had ever taken off, wouldn't <laughs> it?
0: That's too. Ter- that would have been a really great marketing strategy.
1: Yes, healthy mind and a healthy body.
0: <laughs> well, I think that we could probably put that out now.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, yes. For certain bibliophiles,
1: it might. You know, it might. It might just catch on. They probably, probably have to have health and safety. You know tests on it in case the books go flying off right now amaranth from what you've been saying about the 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 materiality of the book which you're clearly very engaged with and interested in fascinated by i guess listeners might expect you to have a rather more lukewarm attitude to electronic books but in fact that's not that's not the case at all is it you're very interested in the in in both worlds as it were
0: Yeah, I am. I I don't want to privilege one um, reading material over the other or one interface over the other. I think that that the page and the screen are both really necessary and really useful to us, often just in different contexts. I myself, when I was doing my graduate research, you know, spent part of my time in the stacks of the library consulting physical books, some time in the archives. Um, looking at you know rare manuscript materials and a lot of time reading PDFs of articles that I otherwise wouldn't have access to without digital interfaces. So I have seen firsthand how useful digital reading devices can be. And I'm especially interested in the ways that current creators of reading experiences for, say, the iPad or Kindle... Might be more attuned to thinking about the materiality of those interfaces. There are some examples where publishers are essentially giving us the same book; they're t- treating the book as content, and they're just pouring it into the um, ebook format, letting it be, you know, scalable to the size of your screen, giving you control over, say, the type, uh, typeface, type size, but but basically just giving you content. But then there are also publishers who are doing really interesting experiments with creating reading experiences that are designed specifically for the interface you're going to experience them on, like using the iPad's native functionality to allow you to see a page differently if you touch it or if you tilt the iPad in one direction and sort of have it reveal something that you previously didn't see or have it unlock different reading experiences depending on where you are in space because your iPad is has the capacity to be geolocated. So you might read a story that only is available to you if you go to your local coffee shop or if you go, you know, if you if you take a train ride somewhere and then you have to go to this geographic space in order to access the narrative that's embedded there spatially. Um and I think those types of reading experiences that don't treat the interface as a kind of invisible vessel are the reading experiences that are going to have more of a lasting impact on readers and that are doing more to stretch our ideas of the book and really treat the digital interface as a material construct just like the clay tablet or the kipu or the codex book
1: a book in its purest form, is a phenomenon of space and time and dimensionality that is unique unto itself. When we turn the page, the previous page passes into our past, and we are confronted by a new world. Dick Higgins, a book. And reading your book left me with the idea that it will probably be artists, you know, digital artists, programmers, who explore that field most imaginatively and take it forward? Because it seems to me, looking at it from the publishing side, that publishers are still rather stuck in trying to find a commercial model. And by sort of privileging that as their main question, how do we invest in this and create something which is new and exciting and interactive, but cost effective, and always feeling that they're going to be the impoverished cousins of the video game developer or the motion picture uh, producer, that I think commercial publishers, you know, maybe big commercial publishers, are rather stuck and have been rather stuck for quite a long time.
0: Oh, well, I, I, I'll take your word on them being stuck, but I think that makes, it makes sense to me that also the financial imperative would make it sort of prohibitive for them to develop books in that way. But ultimately, And I, I think ultimately you're absolutely right that it's going to be artists... And, um, you know, people who already inherently have the capacity to develop for these platforms who are going to create the books that do that sort of boundary pushing, that's also partly because they are they're envisioning the work and its interactivity simultaneously. Rather than writing a book, they're creating an experience. They're thinking about what the reader is going to do with his or her body when they encounter the text and they're, they're using the interface as part of how they tell the story they need to tell and when I say story I don't mean they're always writing novels or creating narrative but the experience is fundamentally incorporating its material form and I think that's one of the reasons that it sort of has to happen it has to be located first in the artist
1: A book is a machine to think with I.A. Richard's Principles of literary criticism. One of the features which I particularly liked in your book is the, the pages that you devote to quotations about the book from other writers, and they're set in white on, on, a, on a black background, and they sort of interrupt, they sort of punctuate, I guess, the text and give you little moments of reflection or, or counterpoint.
0: I'm so glad that you like those. I um, was working within the aesthetic of the series. MIT Press, as part of the series, always has these pull quotes that draw out sort of important ideas from the body of the text. And I didn't want my voice to be the voice in those pull quotes. I really wanted to create a kind of chorus um, as a way of alluding to how difficult it is to define the book. The book is such a malleable and, and protean artifact an idea even that any number of potential definitions could be given for it. So I wanted to create space for the voices of other thinkers who've influenced my own thinking about the book and let them sort of give their own definitions. And even uh, within the confines of the series, I think I was allotted something like 30 of them and I probably had a list of a (laughs) hundred. So um, I started a project after the book came out to collect more of these definitions from contemporary publishers, artists, writers, librarians, curators, conservators, and ask them, um, what is the book or a book? And I collected those definitions and I have over a hundred of them, which I have been publishing online. Uh, at my book's website just as a way of saying the, the conversation isn't closed. We tend to think of a book once it's published as complete and finished, and it sort of solidifies information in a way and makes it seem concrete. But in fact, this book, like any book, is continually going to change, and it doesn't have to be fixed. And I like the idea that adding all of these voices into the mix keeps that conversation about what books can be and do going.
1: I was talking to Amaranth Borsuk about her book, Entitled The Book. It's published by MIT Press in their Essential Knowledge series, and it's available in paperback. You can find out more about it on the MIT Press website. And do also visit Amaranth's website on her book and the idea of the book, which you'll find at thebook.com and that's spelled T-H-E etc. You can check out all her activities at amaranthborsuk.com. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for more interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you may have missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again next week with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.